Be seated. So as I mentioned during my welcome, uh, it is good to be back. Last weekend, uh, Molly and I, we were in Alabama uh, attending a conference there. Uh, I went to seminary at a school down there, so we were able to reconnect with old friends. And I bring you greetings. I bring you greetings from Christ the King Anglican Church, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, it is, is a beautiful church, and they, they actually uh, pray for us regularly, and they've also financially contributed to restoration. So I send you greetings on their behalf. Uh, also at the conference was our bishop, uh, Bishop Stewart. And uh, he's excited to come up here in May, all the way in May. And as he was talking about this, he was like, Oh, but I hope I can come sooner than that because May is so far away. Uh, so I bring you greetings from Bishop Stewart as well and then many other ministry partners who Molly and I had a chance to meet with and who are, uh, are very excited to hear about another establishment of a word and table and spirit church here in Minneapolis. Um, and, I, and I share all of this not just to list off to you people who I know in Alabama or, or other places. I share this with you because we are not alone in what we are doing. Uh, we are a part of a movement uh, across the Twin Cities, across the Midwest, but also across the nation where people are coming together and they're establishing churches that are, are rooted in history, that are, are rooted in the sacraments and tradition, but also have a high view of the scriptures. And we believe that the spirit is moving today. And this is fun and, excite and an exciting work. Um, and so I, I share that with you. Um, I also want to share this morning uh, that we've had some changes in our children's ministry recently. Uh, we're starting a new class called Club, which I know you hear that and you're like, man, I wish I could be in Club, right? So Club is for third through sixth graders, and they meet the second and the third uh, week of the month. Am I saying this correctly? All right, interrupt if I say something wrong. You've got my permission. And this is the first week that they're back in here because I wasn't in here last week. So, so I do want to extend a special welcome to the kids. Uh, if you need to doodle things that I say in my sermon, that's fine. Uh, adults, if you need to doodle things that I say in my sermon, that's fine. Um, but we love hearing you sing we, uh, along with us. Uh, so you are welcome in here, kiddos. Uh, thank you for being here with us. So I will pray now for us. Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts are warm uh, by you. I pray, God, I pray, God, that you would anoint my words this morning, open our hearts that we might hear from you. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Uh, so as, as you all are probably tired of hearing, uh, I used to work at the Apple Store. And I, I have a, a fun little story to share. For, well, kind of fun, I'll be honest. It's kind of fun. Uh, so at the Apple Store, they have this program called One to One. Uh, where you can pay money to come uh, to the Apple stores frequently as once a week to come and learn about your Apple products. And the employees who were the teachers of this, they were called creatives. Uh, very um, interesting uh, title there, creatives. And so if you were a creative, it was kind of a fun gig because you got to sit down and, and drink water or coffee, you know, and you got to have these one-on-one -on -one interactions with people who actually wanted to know more, and they were very, very courte courteous. And you would begin to have regulars who would come in, and they would book an appointment uh, to meet with you, and sometimes they would, they would request you. You know, they'd be like, oh, could I, could I meet with Scott this morning? Uh, you know, he, he knows my situation, and he knows my equipment and my, my questions and stuff. 
And uh, I'm not going to mention one of my friends by name. We'll just call him James uh, for today. His name's not actually James. But James, James figured out a way to kind of work the system to his favor uh, by being a, a creative at the Apple store. You see, oftentimes people would come in and, and they would ask questions about their computer, but then they would go further and say, you know, my home Wi-Fi isn't working very well. Um, do you know what could be causing that? Or my printer's not working at home. I want to get my Apple TV set up at home. And at first, James would kind of say no to, to whether or not he could help these people. But then eventually, James started going and making house visits. Now, as you can imagine, uh, Apple management does not want their employees to be going out and doing house visits. Uh, that is what we would call a conflict of interest. And you see, what James is trying to do uh, is, is he was trying to make more money on the side, right? And he was playing both games. He, he tried to play the game at Apple of being a good employee and, and respecting his managers. But then he was also trying to play the game of using the information that he learned himself from the Apple store for his own personal gain. And he started, you, you would notice that some of James's um, contacts would actually stop coming to the Apple store because they knew that they could just call on James. Well, one day, as you might imagine, he was called into the manager's office and, there was a, it, and, and this, these shenanigans were put to an end. Uh, and then all of us, the rest of us employees were asking, where did James go? Well, he had been let go. James had been let go for his conflict of interest. So, as you might be aware, throughout September, we have been preaching through James. We've been pre preaching through the epistle of James. This is part of our Anglican uh, Sunday morning uh, lectionary assignments. And so we've been going through each one of these passages and we've been using the phrase that James is full of wisdom of the ordinary, or that James is enrolling us in the, the school of discipleship, because he wants us to be more like his brother, Christ. He wants us to be more like Jesus Christ. So we've talked about the sin of partiality a few weeks ago. We've talked about the, the sin of destructive speech. Um, we've talked about many things within the book of James not because James wants to treat us as, as projects. That's, that's not what this life is about. Holiness is not a project. But because James wants us to be so filled with wisdom and peace and joy and love, just like Jesus Christ. Well, today we're going to be looking at another problem that James addresses head on. And that is the sin of double-mindedness. The sin of double-mindedness. That is trying to play both sides of the game. Double-mindedness is pledging allegiance to multiple parties, pledging allegiance to the Apple store, but also pledging allegiance to the individual clients who would come in and make, uh, invite you to do house calls. That's not the only example of double-mindedness. Uh, it would also be double-minded of you if you are married to be pursuing somebody else. Uh, we have words about those kinds of situations. That is being double-minded. James, in just a few verses before this, speaks of general spirit spiritual double-mindedness. He says you cannot be a friend of the world and also a friend of the Lord. In fact, he says if you are a friend of the world, and that doesn't mean being nice to people. He doesn't mean that. He means behaving in a, in a worldly, carnal fashion. If that is you, then you are actually an enemy of God, is what he says. Very strong words. So why is double-mindedness wrong? You know, because it actually sounds like it's kind of crafty, right? We're we're able to take a few steps forward just by kind of playing the game a little bit. 
So what's, what's so wrong about this? What's so wrong about being double-minded? Well, you have two playbooks that you're trying to follow, right? Two totally opposing sets of rules, two opposing codes of conduct, and they have conflicting goals, right? Elsewhere, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. Well, not only are these two different rule books, but just think of the psychological turmoil and stress that we put ourselves under when we're trying to, to rectify these two composing views within our minds. You know, and you, you can hear this, actually, when you, when you speak to an adulterer who's trying to justify their adultery. It's nonsensical. It makes, makes no sense at all. In fact, you, you hear the, kind of the turmoil of their heart starting to come out, um, kind of the anxiety uh, that they're experiencing. And then ultimately, what you're saying when you try to play both games, the sin of double-mindedness, is you're, what you're actually saying is that neither one of these rule books are supreme. Neither one of these rule books are supreme. Instead, it is my own desires. It is my own interests. My own passions are the ultimate authority. So as I was speaking about this with my wife, Molly, I was, we, were, we were talking about, well, what, what exactly is the opposite of double-mindedness? And you could say, quite literally, well, it's, it's single-mindedness. It could be single-mindedness. In fact, that kind of reminds us of the first and the great commandment, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And it goes on and on to condemn those who are double-minded about their allegiances to other gods. But I, I think, in, at least in our modern language, single-mindedness can kind of um, have, a, have a connotation of just like focus of mind, when there's so much more that we're talking about here. We're not just talking about the mind. And this had me thinking about the opening collect that we all prayed. Maybe there was a little phrase in that opening collect. And in fact, feel free to peel back to that. Um, maybe there was a phrase in that opening collect that, that stuck out to you, that opening prayer for the day, where we were called to pray for pardon and peace, that by your grace we may serve you with what? A quiet mind. A quiet mind. And I wonder... Maybe those who crafted these collects, these, these old prayers, maybe they had this assignment from James in mind. So maybe the opposite of a double mind is actually a quiet mind. A mind that is, is not just a focus of mind, but also when you hear that someone has a quiet mind, you know that their heart is at rest. Because you're, you're at peace, because your trust is in something that is much greater than yourself. You are under the authority of something greater than you. So maybe the opposite of a double-minded of double-mindedness is a quiet mind. And I have to confess, this is something that I desperately want. Because I don't know about you, but when I when I leave here and I turn on social media or the news or the newspaper, my mind is anything but quiet, right? And I'm sure you feel that way as well. There is just anxiety upon anxiety that is being lumped upon us. So I desperately want a quiet mind rooted in Christ Jesus. So what I would like to do for the rest of my sermon is talk about three aspects of a, of a quiet mind that I believe that James is calling us to. So three aspects of a quiet mind. First of all, a quiet mind requires location. A quiet mind requires location. You'll notice that this passage begins with James saying, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, just a little aside, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you should ask yourself, what is it therefore? 
And what it means is that there is, there is much that is preceding this passage, namely when James is telling us not to have, um, be friends with the world uh, and, and enemies. Or friends with the world. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, for anyone who's buying a house, you know that there's really only one rule when it comes to buying a house. Location, 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 right? Location is everything. And as it pertains to this passage, I'm not necessarily talking about a physical location or physical movement, but a a posturing of the soul. And here's what this looks like. James tells us. He tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. To resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, friends, the devil is a coward. And through prayer and through praise, we can claim the victory of Christ at the cross. And that will remind the devil that, that he has already been defeated. And that will, he is a coward. That will send him running in fear. It'll, he will be reminded that he's already been beaten. So now that's, that's not to say that he won't work hard. Because the devil will try to trick you. He will try to say that he's gotten you before and he will get you again. But do not forget of that authority that we have as being children of God our Father. You see, spiritual warfare, as, as one of my professors from college would say, spiritual warfare is not a tug of war. It's not this horizontal tug of war. Instead, spiritual warfare is a vertical chain of command. And it is claiming the authority that we are in so that we can proclaim that authority to the spiritual forces that are around us. So I don't know, do you have thoughts that are haunting you that you know are, are outside of yourself? Do you have sins that are just grippled in, or grappled onto your soul that you have a difficult time letting go of? Claim the power of Christ through prayer and through praise to resist the devil. But that's not enough just resisting the devil. The other aspect of being located in Christ is that you need to pledge. It's not enough to just replace one or to to push away one allegiance. You need to claim allegiance to another. So that's why James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this doesn't need to be super complicated. What does it look like to draw near to God? Well, it means reading the Bible, reading the word of God, fellowshipping with other believers, Confessing your sins to the Lord. Receiving the holy sacrament at the table. This is what it means to draw near to God. But it also means serving the poor and the marginalized. Going out, opening up your home to others. Opening your wallet to generosity. This is what it means to draw near to God. And the promise is clear. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So, As Christians who are wanting and desiring a quiet mind, we must locate ourselves, orient ourselves away from the devil and towards God. Secondly, a quiet mind requires labor. A quiet mind requires labor. In verse 8, James says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I don't know about you, but I hear that and I go, ugh. Like, this is a good passage for Lent. I don't know if this is a good passage for ordinary time, the time of of green and life and goodness. Oh, this is intense. 
But I think what James is telling us is that the Christian life requires labor. A quiet mind isn't obtained uh, with passivity. It's through labor. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because a, a healthy life, if you want to be physically fit, what does that require? Well, it requires going to the gym, which clearly I could probably partake of a little bit more myself. But if you want to feel healthy yourself, like in your gut, well, it means that you need to be eating healthy foods, and that takes work and regiment. And if you want emotional health, if you have things that you've been struggling with in your past, that probably means that you need to be going and seeing counseling. But again, that is another discipline. That is another challenge. So why should we be surprised, therefore, that spiritual fitness should also require or should be any different? You see, I think what James is saying here is that we should see that there is a regiment of spiritual discipline. And to be honest, this is, this is really hard to, to read, right? Because you, you hear these words and, and they're heavy. They weigh on us. You know, I hear them and I'm like, seriously, James? Wow. Well, let's take a little bit of a closer look on this because there's, there's some, I promise, there's some fun things going on here. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so in verse 8, we hear this, this parallel phrase that's just beautiful. James is such a great writer and you can tell he's, he's so rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. He says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So whenever you hear these parallel statements in the scriptures, and, and kids, you might enjoy this because this is really easy for you to spot as well. But whenever you hear these phrases, they kind of look the same. They're speaking to one another, and they're supposed to illuminate each other to, to bring forth an even larger truth. So cleanse your hands. Now, clearly, that is, a, that is an external thing, right? What James is talking about is our outward behaviors. God is concerned about the way that we behave. Now, purify your hearts. That is our internal thoughts and our internal desires, which, again, God is concerned about. Now, there's two ways to look. Well, first of all, what I'm trying to say here is through this parallel statement is that God cares about the whole person. Not just the way that we behave externally, then we would be a hypocrite. And not just the way in which we are internally, then we would be faith without works, right? Which we know what James says about that. No, God is concerned about the whole entire person. Now there's kind of a negative way to view this, especially as, as Americans who don't like authority, we don't like being told what to do. We hear that and we're like, wow, this sounds like a lot of work, James. Don't you think God could maybe give me a little bit more space? Like, stop being so intense? Why does he have to care about every little tiny minutia, like, detail that's in my life? But there's a positive way to looking at this, too. And that is the author of life, the author of the cosmos, of, of time and creation, of, of everything, is concerned about all of us. There's nothing that he doesn't want to, to see healing with. He wants to redeem the entirety of who you are because he loves you. Because he, he, he has redeemed you. So that pesky little sin that's been bugging you, that little tiny thing that keeps tripping you up, God wants to work in that. Not because he wants to destroy you and he wants to put more burdens upon you, but because he wants to restore you. And he wants to rebuild you to be stronger than you were before in Christ his son. So some of you might know that I, I really love a, a particular brewery that's over in St. Paul called Waldman. 
Uh, this is a, a German brewery. They, they adhere to some of the, the German brewing um, purity laws. Um, some of you, this might be the first time you've heard a preacher talk about beer in a sermon. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for that. I, I do enjoy it. Uh, but this brewery is really interesting because it's, it's an old, old building. And this, this historian purchased it. And he wanted to restore it to its authentic um, way that it used to be. And this has been a large task. He raised a ton of money for this. It took him a long time. Uh, Marin and I were actually able to go and see the, the building before it was finished. Uh, and it, it's, it's a lot of big work. There's a lot of um, cleaning off the walls, rebuilding some walls that had fallen. In some instances, it's, it's putting up more structural pillars to give the building some more structural integrity. But the thing that I got really excited about were kind of those little tiny details that, that um, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, but the, the man took in restoring this facility. In fact, at one point, he, he was geeking out about this restoration project and how he would ask his carpenters to remove individual nails that had been used and that these individual nails would be smoothed out again, made more um, proper and, and strong, I guess, and then they would be placed back. They would be used again in the facility. Now, why is it that when learning about this restoration project, uh, I would get more excited about the little tiny details like that than the big structural changes? And I don't know. Maybe you have examples of this as well. What, like, what's that thing that you geek out on? And, the, and, the thing, and what I mean by that is like the little tiny things that actually matter, right? Well, I think you see where I'm going with this. God wants to remove and repair even the small nails that are in our side. And maybe, I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's the harsh way that you speak to your family when, when you don't have guests over. Maybe it's thoughts that come to your mind or images that you look at online. I don't know what these, these nails are. But God wants them. He wants to restore the entirety of your being. Well, let's move on to verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Again, I think what James is emphasizing here is that the Christian walk is labor. It can be difficult. Now, going back to my friend at the Apple store, uh, the creative, uh, James, as we've been calling him, he could have changed his ways, right? Like, he could have told his clients, I'm done with this. I, I can no longer do house visits. He would have maybe had to readjust his household income, which would have been a sacrifice, right? But then he could have committed himself to that company and worked his way up, uh, if that's what he desired. Or he could have chosen the other playbook. He could have quit the Apple store and started his own at-home consulting company. He could have done that. But again, that's hard work. That would be a risk that we'd have to take. So I think that is what James is trying to say here. You need to pick one side, and it will be difficult Saying no to some of these things is going to be a mourning experience for you. Some of your, your cynical laughter, some of the things that you laugh at will need to be placed aside so that you can pursue something that is more holy and righteous and good. So we've been seeing this morning that a quiet mind requires both location, being rooted in Christ, but also labor. And if we stopped here in the sermon... We could see why some people would be, uh, why, why some people are tempted to call James a book of self-righteousness, right? Or as Martin Luther, the reformer, called James, he called it an epistle of straw. 
Uh, and I think that would be the case if we were to stop here. But the good news is that the letter continues. James is always grounded and centered upon Christ Jesus and the grace that he offers, and today is no exception. Verse 10. Oh, so my third point is a quiet mind leads us to launch. I know that might be a weird phrase, but I wanted to stick with the L's. Um, I'm, I'm getting into alliteration. Please forgive me. Um, so a quiet mind leads us to launch. So verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Now the phrasing of this, again, we're seeing another uh, moment of parallelism. Uh, what James is doing is he's, ref he's kind of restating the phrase of verse 7 when he said, submit yourselves to God. Here he's saying, humble yourselves before the Lord. And what James is doing is he's kind of creating this lasso over the entire paragraph and, and packaging it and, and cinching it all together. It's kind of like he's saying, in light of all of this stuff, humble yourselves before, not God, but he says the Lord. Now, I point that out because that is a, a very deliberate thing that James is saying here. When he says the Lord, he's not referring to God, the Trinity, in, in, in entirety. He's referring to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stepped down from heaven to come and be with us in our humanity. That's who James is talking about here, the God of grace, Jesus Christ. So there is this painting that I absolutely love. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's called The Raft of Medusa. Have, have any of you, do any of you know this, this painting? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a beautiful work. It's not necessarily full of uh, joy and excitement, although there, there is some of that in it. It's called The Raft of Medusa, for heaven's sakes. Uh, but this depicts some shipwrecked sailors who have been adrift at sea. Their, sh their ship has crashed off the coast of Africa, and they've, they've created this raft. And you see them, the waves are crashing upon the raft. And it is an, an entirely dire situation that you see. There's one man who's holding his deceased son who seems to be slipping through his hands uh, into the waves. There's another man who's crouched over and he's pulling his hair out. You just see the frustration just emanating from his entire um, physical structure. Uh, it, is, it is a sad, sad situation. In fact, some have said that it's, it's a painting not just of sailors who are adrift at sea, but people, humans, who are on the edge, they are adrift on the edge of humanity itself. But there is hope in this painting. In fact, if you look at some of the men, they're standing on top of one another, and you can see out onto the horizon. In fact, some of the lines of the bodies and the, the bars of the ship itself are actually pointing, your, they're directing your line towards the horizon, where you see this, this ship, the Argus, and it's just a faint little tiny dot on the edge of the horizon. And the sailors are standing on top of one another. One of them has a, a torn off rag or something that he's just waving throughout the air, trying to get the attention of this ship that is so far away. And it is an absolutely masterful painting. It's beautifully done. I can kind of geek out more about that. But I actually had the chance to sit in front of this painting uh, in Paris myself. And it's huge. It's absolutely huge. The bodies are, are painted at life size at minimum, and sometimes they're at, at twice the size. So it's a massive painting. And sitting in front of it is just such a humbling experience. It's humbling for a, a many reasons. One of them is, man, I will never be an artist like this. Uh, I read that the guy who painted it was just 27 years old when he did it. 
But also I think about the, the real people who are depicted in this. And I think of the suffering that they've experienced. The hope that they've, they've grasped onto and that they're actually hopefully able to get and to retrieve. This is a painting that speaks both to the despair and the hope of humanity. Now, to receive from a painting like this, and you might have your own famous pieces of work or, or uh, artwork or music that you've um, drawn a lot from, but to, in order to receive from something like this, you need to humble yourself before it. You need to sit in front of it. You need to meditate on the colors and the lines. You need to study the story that is behind the work itself. And sometimes you even need to learn about the artist himself or herself to know what was going on in their imagination that would have inspired them to do something like this. Now, it's one thing to humble yourself before a painting or a song or a building or whatever you're into. And it's quite another thing to humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he was not adrift uh, on a raft no, he was adrift on a cross at the edge of humanity itself. And to humble ourselves before the Lord means to humble ourselves before the cross of Christ where the devil was defeated, where darkness was defeated and sin. This isn't a 2D painting that is often in uh, Paris, no. But this is the cross of Christ, which is an eternal reality. It's the center of the entire universe. And he is speaking to me and to you today. And then our passage tells us that when we humble ourselves before the cross, before the Lord Jesus Christ, he will exalt us. You see, this is that grace that I was alluding to earlier. You see, our labor isn't done alone. It's not like we're, God is looking at us off in a sandbox waiting for us to clean ourselves off. No, that's not it. He is there with us, laboring with us, alongside us. All of this cleansing and purifying and labor that, John, that James has been talking about isn't done alone. It's done with the Lord Jesus Christ who died upon the cross and defeated the devil and who now sits in heaven pleading on our behalf. And it gets better. He has infused us with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why the devil flees from you, beloved of God. This is why the Father draws near to you. It's because you have the spirit of Christ within you. But it gets even better than that. You have been placed within the body of Christ himself. You're able to, to enter into the family of Christ along brothers and sisters who are, who are laboring with you as well, who are fighting against the same things that you are fighting against. This is what it means to be exalted, friends. This is what it means to be exalted. We are elevated in the presence of Christ and his love within the church. So do you want to escape double-mindedness? Do you want to pursue the quiet mind? Well, locate yourself in Christ. Labor alongside Christ and be launched into the love of Christ as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess to you that... Um, we are oftentimes double-minded. There are many allegiances in this world that are, are pulling at us. Lord Christ, we want to submit to you and you alone. I pray, God, for myself and for every person who is here that you would quiet us, Lord, with your love. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.
So it is our tradition to, at this moment to stand and recite together the words of the Nicene Creed. Uh, we are joining alongside Christians around the globe and throughout time as we do so and proclaim these truths. So let us say together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty.